Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to everyone. This is a little landmark actually because this is the very first time that the dreaded O word has been allowed in this ancient establishment. So it's a little landmark today. So I'd just like to uh, introduce our panel first of all. We have Jane England here, who's the director of England Co., the Contemporary Art Gallery in London, that's introduced many artists over the years. And she's also shown and curated exhibitions of outsider art, both at her own gallery and at other venues. Thomas Roeschke is the director of the world-famous Prinzhorn Collection in Heidelberg, which is the collection of psychiatric art. And under his care, the collection has a dedicated museum now, open to the public. It organises exhibitions of work from the collection and also shows art by people with psychiatric experience from other collections. Mark Steen is the co-director of the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester and the founder of its Outside In programme, which is a programme for artists who, for reasons of health, disability or social circumstance, find themselves outside the mainstream art world. And it now involves over 2,000 artists. And finally, Ian Sherman is a self-taught artist from Hampshire who is in the Outside In program. But he does not refer to himself as an outsider, more as an idiosyncratic artist. And he creates paintings and assemblages made with different objects. Now, the first question we're going to look at, and one of the premises for this discussion, is to look at Joseph Cornell. Now, Joseph Cornell was self-taught. He was an unusual artist. He had uh, quite a limited uh, social uh, life and so on. And we're, we're going to think whether he should be considered an outsider artist. But even to consider this question, of course, brings up the whole thorny premise of what is outsider art and what is an outsider artist. Are they untaught, unschooled, unsung, ordinary genius of everyday life? Or are they uh, coming from a completely different place? The whole um, sort of definition of outsider art has changed over the years and is continually changing. In the 20th century, it first emerged really from uh, some enlightened psychiatrists like Hans Prinzhorn. And in 1922, Prinzhorn's book, was called Artistry of the Mentally Ill. And so in a way, it started off as art of the insane. Even Prinzhorn talked about schizophrenic masters. Later in the 20th century, de Buffet started working out and formulating his own definition of art brute, which included many psychotic artists, but also others who didn't have any uh, mental illness at all. Uh, mediums or fierce individualists like Scotty Wilson, people like that. And then in 1972, Roger Cardinal's book Outsider Art was published and brought forward yet another definition, which was broader than Art Brute, and began to include other artists, especially environmentalists and so on, who weren't really considered Art Brute. And then gradually we had more and more definitions, like Neuve Invention, or Folk Art, which used in America, and Art Singulaire, and so on. And so the whole question is quite a thorny and complex one. And I'm first going to turn to Jane England, who can try and shed some light on this. Thank you, Jane. Well, I'd sort of like to sort of say that as we're talking, 
also about outsider art and that the word market has been brought into the discussion. And I'm on the panel as a sort of gallerist and a curator who's taken a personal and professional interest in the field. Um, we've held exhibitions in the past on the subject, including one, Outsiders and Co., which we, you and I co-curated in 1996. I've also occasionally in, in exhibited artists such as Genevieve Seyer, who would be seen in the French context as Art Singulière or Nerve Invencial. Um, but the basic definition for me of outsider art is that it's produced by untrained artists who work for themselves. They know little of cultural history or the traditions of fine art. And their extreme individuality makes it very disparate. It's an art made for its own sake, often without an audience in mind, let alone with thoughts of fame or finding a market, or even a commercial presence in any way. When de Buffet established the Compagnie de l'Art Brut in 1947, his stated aim was, and I'll quote him, because I think it's important, to seek out artistic productions from obscure people which display a special character of personal invention, spontaneity and freedom. Roger Cardinal, in turn, felt that this art proliferates around the outskirts of the cultural city. And his book, Outsider Art, renamed Art Brut and expanded the, as John said, expanded the definition. So his phrase, outsider art, has become the most used label. However, this term, outsider art, has become elastic. It's now come to encompass so much more than the original definitions of Art Brut. As the boundaries have expanded, you've got folk art, naive art, and amateur self-taught art have sort of entered and sort of got under the umbrella of outsider art. So in France, the definition's rather more rig rigorously applied. So I think in terms of outsider art in the market, George Melly said the most perfect thing. Um, George said that to exhibit an outsider, to reveal to them that there's a market for their work, you might lose them. And he asked rhetorically, should you deliberately keep them in the dark? And then he felt that to deny a human being the happiness or satisfaction in order simply to preserve their purity of isolated obsession is wrong. And he wanted us to celebrate the inner truth of outsider art, but never seek to confine those who produce it to a kind of mental monastery. And I think someone like Joseph Cornell could have been seen as an outsider if he'd continued a sort of hermetic existence of making his boxes, his boxes a very sort of poignant, potent nostalgia, which I think are sort of almost Proustian, except, as I was saying to you earlier, I think it's not a memory of things past, it's a memory of what he'd somehow ideally wanted to be. If they'd been discovered after his death and he hadn't entered the mainstream artistic conversation, yes, we might have thought of him as a sort of outsider artist, but the fact is, he did enter the conversation, he had a dealer, he had friendships with people like Duchamp, and although his dealer, Julian Levy, referred to them as toys for adults, which could be seen as patronizing, in fact, they were quite sophisticated objects, and he maintained, and I've read some of his letters to people and seen some in archives in America, he was quite a sophisticated man, so I don't really think, he may have been outside slightly on the edges of the mainstream, but he also completely joined the conversation. Thank you very much. Thomas, I wonder if you'd agree with that, that uh, Cornell might have been an outsider artist, but because of his involvement with uh, exhibiting and the Surrealist, he was not. 
Yes, I think uh, <clears throat> he probably wouldn't have developed the work he did without uh, this idea of communication with the art world and uh, with other um, streams of um, art which existed already. So surrealism, for example, I think was very important for him to uh, not only utter certain ideas and certain concepts uh, aesthetically, but also to get into communication with others. And um, I think for me one important difference between outsider art and other art is that outsider art um, most often does not stop uh, at the point of uh, wanting to be a kind of symbolic representation of something, but uh, is something and wants to get into reality, wants to change reality, uh, wants, to, wants to grapple with um, ex existence, with the existence of the artist uh, in a much more acute way than uh, we are used to it with other artists. And uh, this also includes the fact that outsider artists do not always have to be just self-trained. <clears throat> they can be trained artists, but under an impact of a certain event in their life, develop a, um, a series of works which they do not recognize as art works at all. There are several examples, like Horst Ademite, for example, who even uh, was educated by Joseph Beuys and uh, was taught at the Düsseldorf Academy but uh, the, the main part of his late work was just dedicated to take Polaroid photographs of cold rays, which were for him responsible for everything evil in the world. And he was convinced that he could document this cold rays. And only late in his life, uh, the gallerist Susanne Zander asked him if she could market it as artworks. And as he, I, I would think, as he was. Uh, in need of money, he accepted it. <clears throat> and that is why these things came into the art world, and they are outsider art in that way. But um, I think Joseph Cornell's work has a lot of existential features in it, and uh, is probably not only meant as a kind of uh, symbolic representation, as we is, are used to it with other art, but he has used this contact with the art world as a kind of release and relief for his ideas and the communication was very important for him. So for me, he may be a kind of border case, but I would think he mostly is not an outsider artist. So would you say that uh, a lot of outsider art is produced by people not thinking that it is art at all? Um, in many cases, they do both and they accept that what they produce is art, and sometimes uh, classical outsider artists even say, oh, I, I feel like Picasso also can happen, <clears throat> but at the same time they are convinced that they have magical powers and they influence reality and somehow conquer the bad in the world. That does not uh, exclude each other. So Mark, I wonder what you felt about Cornell and his uh, possible position in outsiderdom. I suppose I was sort of going to um, speak a little, I mean, my thoughts around the issues around labelling artists and art more generally and um, the particular sort of contentions and sort of um, problems around whether it's outsider art, self-taught, primitive, naive, visionary folk. Um, to me, there's a sort of collectivising and a sort of, there's politics and power in that because to me, there's slightly lesser and other 
than other art terms we might use. And if we're talking about art, we tend to talk about other art movements we recognise, whether that's Cubism, Impressionism, Surrealism, for example, with Cornell. Um, and I suppose the collectivising of a group of artists whose only common denominator is their difference. It's not about their work at some level, because uh, the, the elastic term um, Jane refers to is elastic. There's not a commonality about the work. There's not a stylistic journey there. And I suppose at a certain level, I, I, I'm challenged by that, because I think you know, there's something I find politically difficult there, because it's about power, it's about academics, it's about curators, it's about people making judgments about, uh, about art and artists, and saying that there's a group of artists here who by the nature of their lives or their experiences or a disability are not part of a wider sort of discussion about art. And um, I, I sort of worry and I struggle with that at some level. But also understand and respect the journey of outsider art as an area has gone on. The importance and the work that Raw Vision have done and you know, the Buffet and Roger Card and all of that, because actually without that happening, we wouldn't even be having this debate. But I think we've moved on as a society where that idea of a sort of separate collective in, collectivizing of, these, of artists is somehow needs to move beyond that to, to a wider sort of emancipated art world. I, I don't know. That's my thing. In your uh, Outsider In program, do you see all the artists in different ways or do you see them all in, in one group? Yes, I suppose, I mean, for me and for the project, it's very much about enabling the artists to position themselves. So... Um, we, we, we don't use terms to describe the artist's sort of work, and I think, um, predominantly, I think that's a, a really powerful thing and an important thing to do, because if we predispose to sort of apply a label or to describe work in certain ways, that's a decision and made by us. It's a disempowering to the artists themselves. And I know that it offers a big challenge to the wider art debate, where we talk about art through art history and methodology, and we have to have this sort of nice connection between, you know, Picasso, going to Cezanne, going back to, you know, um, Poussin. But actually, artists aren't like that. That's a way of thinking about art. That isn't art. It's not the art itself. Art's about communication, to me, primarily, and it's about us trying to communicate to each other. And if you're an artist, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make art that way. And I suppose I'd rather focus on the individual and what they're trying to say, and if they want to say something about it, I think it's for them in terms of outside in. It's about giving them the space to describe themselves and their work. I think that's a really important thing to do, rather than other people making those labels for them. Interesting. So Ian, uh, you're part of the Outside In programme, but you're, you don't describe yourself as an outsider artist. Why is that in particular? I think that's because the, the wide variety of work, it doesn't all fit in to what I would think is outside of art. Probably the 3D is, and a lot of the other isn't. Um, I used to destroy work. Um, well, the halcyon days of when I just didn't care um, what, what happened to it, I, I just wanted to do it, um, began to pass, and I thought, well, what's the point of doing it if somebody doesn't get something from it apart from myself? Um, so. I don't call myself an outsider because of the, the, the wide variety of the work, but also uh, because I started destroying uh, work that didn't fit into this or that, and people were in the same room talking about me as I wasn't there, am I this, am I that? So in the end, I thought, well, let others categorise me. I'm not going to bother anymore, I'm just going to do it. 
Um, so that's why I've come to the decision not to be some sort of fraud, but just try to be honest about where I stand, um, but w without um, going to the length of destroying work because it doesn't fit into this or that now. <laughs> so you're, ha you're happier without a label on you at all? Yes, but I'm also very resistant to be, to be um, taken over or told what to do by um, doctrines of conformity, and I have come across that, but I've always resisted that with a passion. And, um, and I think that is one area where outside art is very strong, is that they, they nearly always are not um, affected by uh, doctrines from other sources. Um, and I think they should be respected for that. Well, I think that's one of the principal aspects of outsider art in a way, is that the premise that they're untrained and uninfluenced. Yes. And so each of them becomes... Um, almost an art movement of one person that's in, right. in their unique work, yeah. Yes, that's probably why it's um, becoming a more noticed area. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a, a, a more noticed area today, and um, we're just going to look at the huge growth of interest that's happened over the past, I would say, about four or five years almost. Um, and it, it's in the life of Raw Vision, it's quite interesting. I mean, the magazine's been going for 25 years, and when we started, the first magazine, there were probably only about 10 people in the world that knew all the things in that magazine. And outsider art comes from uh, a, a place where it used to be almost secret art. You know, it's al almost a covert art. It's only shown behind uh, closed doors or under medical conditions. And now, um, outsider art has um, become so well known that we're even discussing it here in the Royal Academy. So things have really changed over the past few years. So I'd like to ask uh, our panel why that might be. And first I'll ask Jane, who's uh, uh, an art dealer here, so she may have a, a bit of a clue about the market. Thank you. Well, I think outsider art, to a certain extent, when I first sort of encountered it and became interested in it, I mean, I got interested in it through becoming interested in Dubuffet when I was quite young. And then later on I discovered, I found some of the publications he produced in the 1940s, and I became more interested. But it seemed to me that this appreciation of, well, art brute, was something that was sort of almost like a sophisticated artistic elite were the people that were really interested. It was, it was covered, not so much the artists being covered, but the actual people that were interested. It was quite exclusive and it seemed to be a lot of artists. I mean, it goes back to people like Picasso and a lot of artists were appropriating from primitive or so-called outsider art. So you had Picasso appropriating or sort of, you could say, exploiting and renewing in some way African art. And then you had other artists who were also absorbing those influences. And so they almost kept it like a sort of secret. I remember once a, a sort of so-called outsider artist called Dame, Damien Labar, who actually said to me that a gallerist he'd had some dealings with sort of said to him, had made him feel that he had been he should be not saying anything. And she's, he said, I'm not a mushroom. I'm not sort of going to hide under a rock like a mushroom. So, you know, it's a sort of, there is a validity for, but at the same time, you don't want the backstory to become the only thing that validates the work. So intrinsically, a sort of work of art has to stand on its own merits and you, you can't really always use the backstory as the sort of, although any appreciation of a work's subjective, you still can't use the backstory is the thing that makes it interesting. So I've segued off in different directions there, but anyway. Let's pick up on 
James' point is interesting. Um, uh, yeah, your point about sort of narrative and sort of you know personal narratives. And um, I mean, I, I was just thinking about when we were um, with outside in, in um, the outsider art fair in Paris last year, and we had four of our artists on the show there and talk about the sort of you know, the commercial market. I, I said to Jane the other day when we were in Paris, the one thing that struck me was in France it's quite art brute. It's very much the buffet. It's very much that attitude about art. And I was quite struck by almost, I think, Jen's in the room somewhere, but the first thing people often would say about the artist's sort of work was, is this artist in an asylum? Have they been in an asylum? Um, and do, uh, do they have mental health issues of some sort? Almost until that box was ticked, they almost wouldn't look at the work. This idea that um, that was the sort of premise in which you had to first get past before the work could be included as art brute or looked at. And I think that's an interesting and difficult topic, I think, for us. You know, that actually, is that narrative more important than the work, or is it a primary decision before you look at it, or do you just look at the work? And to me, it's about the work, primarily. But I think your point about value is interesting, this idea that in the last sort of four to five years, we've seen a boom of interest, and that's down to people like the Museum of Everything and, and James, and that's done a huge amount about raising the profile. It's increased value, and it's made people aware. I think outside, in its, in its own way, we've had 30 exhibitions, I think, in the last three or four years. And um, we've had, you know, like 2,000 artists involved. We've exhibited work in the main galleries, in the main spaces up and down the country. And I think there's, you know, there's a sort of sense where we've, we've made a case. The work is of value, it is of interest. And it's that sort of position where we're trying to find a way to move beyond that now. It's no longer just outside, it's part of the actual debate and the conversation. That's the same with, I mean, we have to talk about the Venice Biennale two years ago. I mean, the curator of the Venice Biennale made, sort of included so many outsider artists in the Biennale that it actually was quite striking. And it, it actually invited those artists' work to be part of the mainstream conversation because you can't get something more sophisticated than the Venice Biennale. So that curator actually, I think that was what made a sort of landmark change and a shift in the way the work was perceived. And now you have people like Daga's work sort of reaching sort of dizzy heights in the auction rooms. But I still think it's, to a large extent, I still think outsider art and art brute, the really authentic kind of quite tough work, I don't think it's necessarily easy. I don't think it's going to become overtly collectible as such. It doesn't, by its very nature, it's, it, it doesn't lend itself to that. And I, although some artists may be somehow selected by the sort of artistic elite to become mainstream artists, people like Ramirez or Daga, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to spread right across the field. The interesting point, I mean, the sort of catch-22 of outsider art is almost, if you become only an artist and exhibit your work, you're no longer truly an outsider artist. I mean, the whole sort of, I mean, the darker thing is, is the, the point in case where, you know, the ideal situation is you create obsessively, secretly, you die, you're discovered, and you're not part of that journey where your work is on the walls and it's selling for lots of money. That there's almost an impossible situation there, isn't there? You're not tainted. If you're not part of that, if not part of that process, you're not tainted by it. But it's what George Melly was saying, you know, it's really hard to, it's very unkind to sort of stop someone having a commercial outlet, if that's going to give them so much pleasure. It was about Albert Luton and the Serpentine exhibition. I mean, that was quite big. I mean, but that was the first time a sort of self-taught artist was given a show, was the show at the May Serpentine. I say something as well? <laughs> <laughs> I think from an historical point of view, it's very interesting how the interest in outsider art, or what was it formerly called, Artistry of the Mentally Ill, or uh, Arbrit changes. 
And I think uh, 1972 is a very important year, not only because of the book of uh, Roger Cardell, which is, for me, more looking back to this idea of very authentic art and this myth of that there is more authenticity in this art than in other art, and the other art is completely corrupt and things like that. And at the same time, uh, there is the Documenta 5, uh, where Harald Seemann includes Wölfli and other artists, we would call outsider artists, and he not only includes them, but also includes for the first time in the Documenta conceptual art, for example, and performance art. And uh, what we see in the last years, I think, is um, that um, uh, curators taking up that line. Because, for example, um, the, the alternative universe to the, uh, the alternative guide to the universe, the exhibition which was here in the Hayward, uh, and the Biennale in 2013, both, in my experience, in my view, took up the line that there is a, um, a close relationship between some outsider art and conceptual art. You can, in some cases, you can really uh, switch the viewpoint uh, because outsider artists tend to follow one idea which is very important for them and for their existence and sometimes art becomes a kind of life or existence prosthesis. Um, and this can be seen as a kind of very consequent conceptual art as well. And nowadays it seems as if the curators also want to point to that fact that there is a relationship and uh, conceptual art is so much into our brain now as the kind of uh, uh, hip art which we have all to look at, uh, the, the model of art, that we also look at especially these kinds of outsider artists which represent this kind of art. And on the other hand, I think it may also be connected to the fact that we are all completely fed up with rationality, uh, which is nowadays a complete late capitalist uh, rationality, which a ration, rational, which which puts us out of our existence. <laughs> it's so rational that we cannot argue against it, and people obviously, I think, see something uh, completely irrational and uh, in outsider art and something which is against all this kind of lines of argument we are completely fed up with. I think that's always been the case because uh, de Buffet had an almost anti-intellectual stance. And w one of the attractions to him outside art was yeah. it didn't have an intellectual content But in the I same think way. it's something different nowadays because it's, uh, it goes to the existence of the people. It's not just uh, a game or it's not just a, an argument about aesthetics and art. It's really about life. And uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of outsider artists managed to do something which all artists of the 20th century tried to do and never achieved, namely to break out of this golden cage of symbolic representation. What, whatever they did, conceptual art, performance art or so, it was all swallowed by the art world and all people said, okay, it's symbolic representation, it belongs to this feature. But uh, outsider artists somehow managed to break through in a completely irrational way. And this may be a kind of attraction for a lot of people nowadays. But do you think that the uh, gradual embracement of outsider art by contemporary art could affect it badly? Well, there, I think you wanted also to talk about uh, the curation of, uh, of outsider art. I think there is a, um, there is a danger 
that uh, this special feature of outside, namely not to be just a symbolic representation, is misunderstood and, uh, and outsider artworks are just pressed into the frame of other art and this special feature is lost. I think this is the biggest danger, but uh, I'm, I'm quite positive in hoping that uh, the inclusion uh, of outsider art will change our way of looking at art. And as soon as we are, um, um, as soon as we, we, it's normal for us to also assume that the artist behind an artwork does not share our sense of reality uh, then we have really a kind of integration of outside, outsider art in the, in the art world. I think that's what should happen anyway uh, with any minority which is swallowed up by a majority that uh, both sides benefit from it and that the majority also change. We have to wait for, I think, this, um, this change of the idea of art. But do you think there's, uh, there's the influence of outsider art on contemporary artists could in some way devalue outsider art itself? Um, I don't think that would be the case. I mean, I, I think what we'd, what we'd do is we'd open up um, a wider debate about creativity and creative process and why people create art more broadly and that some people's work will never be about commodity, it'll never be about context. It, it might be about their need to understand their mobile phone. I mean, there's a wonderful artist we had an outside in 2012 who, who did these fantastic sort of mind diagram drawings and they weren't about trying to, he wasn't trying to produce work to sell, it was just him creatively trying to understand and express how that, what that device is, what it meant symbolically, what it meant practically, trying to understand how it worked. And it was a beautiful, honest drawing of immense power and charm to me and I think that's a lesson, that actually if you sidestep thinking about art, thinking it's about technique or it's about skill, and if you see that sort of truth of creativity, the idea that you can find a way to connect to a more honest way to create art, I think that's the lesson I would take from that type of work. I think that's what strikes me, and I, I, I wouldn't use the term outsider artist, but looking at his work made me realise how far I'd moved from that, possibly through going to school and being told that art is Picasso or Van Gogh or all these people I could never be. I was never encouraged to find my way to relate to my creativity to create work of such honesty. I think that's the lesson I would think we'd hope to learn from it, I think. Yeah. But it's emancipating, I think. It's liberating. Yeah. 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 So Ian, you, you don't feel you're an outsider artist, but do you, you follow the work of other outsider artists, or do you, uh, don't, do you differentiate between them at all? Uh, well, I feel comfortable with them. Um, I share uh, some of my work looks find in an outside of art exhibition. I, I like their freedom, uh, their, and their integrity, and uh, the, the fact that they're not um, uh, trying to change me. <laughs> and that's, a, that's another uh, good thing. Um, and and it's, it's more what art should be at a fundamental level. I've heard a lot of talk about um, mental illness and things and I've always felt that people's doctors and, and them it's, it's very much their business but I, I think that too much emphasis on that side of it would give a hostile critic a lot of scope to, to in a rather totalitarian way to say if you don't agree with me you must be mentally ill 
And so I'm a bit wary of that side of outsider art. Um, but have, having experienced various areas in the art world, um, I've come to the conclusion that the, the intuitive side is the, um, the side that hasn't been developed very much and it, it might be time for it to develop now. That's interesting. Now, Jane, in terms of the market, I know you did um, represent a couple of outside artists for a short time. Um, I mean, it was never... Did you have particular problems with dealing with outsider artists? Or? No, it's just that outsider art was really something that was a personal interest of mine. It wasn't really... It hasn't ever been really the main thrust of our gallery program. Mm. It's a personal interest that kind of crept into the gallery, in a sense, and kind of found its place in the program. And actually, a lot of the artists we knew... I mean, there are people like the performance artist Stuart Brisley, who we represented for a time. And I mean, I remember going to a performance festival in Switzerland with Stuart, where he made a very intense performance, which I think was inspired to a large extent by a sort of an outsider outside artist. And so I think it sort of fitted in. There was kind of shared interest with some of the artists I worked with were interested in outsider art. Um, but I didn't... I only represented some of the out, so-called outsider artists in a sort of loose way. Um, but I did have them as part of our program. They were invited to be in shows. And I always treated the artists as a mainstream artist. They weren't treated any differently. I mean, quite a lot of... What intrigued me was a lot of these artists had never really been treated in a professional way before. So they said, oh, it's the first time anyone's ever given me a receipt. <laughs> you know, just... Which was a sort of surprising thing to hear. Um, but, as I say, it's not our primary focus. Um, but it's something that... And people like Genevieve Saye she's a more sophisticated artist who really, as I say, is more nerve invention, and we've worked with her now for about 25 years. But I quite, I sort of was thinking of the story of Scotty Wilson, who was an artist, a British or Scottish outsider artist, who was discovered when he was started making work and he was in his 40s. And he was taken up in Toronto where he was living at the time. And then he came back to Britain and he ended up with a Mayfair gallery. He was with the very well-renowned Gamble Feast Gallery. And he was having exhibitions of his fantastic drawings. And they really are wonderful. And he'd have exhibitions at their gallery. And he'd be standing out on the pavement selling things for a pound. So it was kind of this wonderful subversiveness. Um, and he, when he died, he evidently had rather a large amount of money. <laughs> well, it's a great story because the, the artist is completely undermining his own market by doing that. And it um, just proved he was a, a total outsider artist. Uh, there's a, an artist in uh, New York called uh, Ionel Tarbazan who only paints uh, flying saucers. And he's claimed to have been abducted by aliens. But his work was being sold at the Outsider Art Fair by American Primitive Gallery. And he was also out in the street selling them for $20 each. So he didn't last very long in the gallery, I'm afraid. But, uh, it just, a, a lot of the, the artists don't actually see their work in the same sort of commercial potential as a, a professional artist might do. So do you don't think there's any particular reason for a growth in interest in outsider art over, over the past few years? You just think it's a natural progression, more and more people finding out about it? Um, I think it's both, uh, as I tried to explain. I think it's uh, maybe a kind of search for something different, giving different answer, answers to problems in our, um, our world now, um, in our 
very pressing late capitalist work world, but it's also um, it, it depends on, on which uh, artworks of outsider artists you look at. I think it's also grew <clears throat> uh, slowly over time with this uh, impulse which uh, uh, Harald Seemann gave and uh, who, who followed up this impulse anyway. He, he did uh, several shows in which yeah. he quite revolutionary uh, mixed uh, contemporary art and uh, outsider art um, like um, um, Massimiliano Gioni did in, in the Biennale. So um, Harald Seemann is really a, a very, very important uh, motor for uh, bringing contemporary art and outsider art together um, and making it understandable somehow as well with this exhibition. He did three exhibitions about eccentrics of different countries, Swiss eccentrics, Austrian eccentrics, and then Belgium eccentrics. That was his last exhibition, which he did in Brussels just before he died. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, started to understand uh, the, the connection uh, between outsider art and a lot of contemporary art. There are, there are connections and uh, it's not the same. It's not, I do not want to say it's the same, but he built bridges to understand it. And I think his work somehow took fruits in the last years as well. Do you see him in a sense as taking on the mantle or the, of Dubuffet in a sense? Yes, he was very much influenced by uh, Dubuffet's idea of Arbrut, but as a, a curator, um, he started with, with an exhibition in 1963 when he showed for the first time in Europe again a big exhibition about Arbrut or uh, outsider art. But as a uh, contemporary art curator, he was not opposed to contemporary art like uh, Dubuffet, but uh, somehow looked for similarities and he was maybe even as much influenced by surrealism as uh, by Dubuffet. Surrealism was the first uh, movement which dared to exhibit um, their own artworks together with artworks by mentally ill people. Well, they were all, the surrealists used to say, they were searching for the marvelous. So, in a sense, mm. outsider art was a natural bedfellow for them. Yeah. And now we are back to Cornell with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, I think that outsider art was almost a beacon for the surrealists. I mean, they were trying to do uh, things like automatic drawing, for example, which every outsider artist does. That's their starting point. Mm -hmm. So um, they were trying to attain something they couldn't attain, but outsider artists could. I mean, as a, as a pure, um, almost psychic flow of creation. So I was going to just pick up on your point about where do we think it's going to happen next? What, what, is, what is going to be the next sort of stage or development around what we call outsider art or work produced by artists whose work isn't often easily seen in galleries, museums or however you want to label it. But, but I think that there's been a, a, real, a realisation and an understanding that there's far more interesting and different creators in our communities than we ever had before. And that um, there's been a huge oversight by us as a culture and as a society not to embrace and include that work. And I, and I worry that how much work is completely slipped through our fingers. You know, how many Scotty Wilsons have there been? How many Alfred Wallaces who are just in landfill sites and, and not here in our, in our museums and collections because we didn't have the foresight to look what's underneath our feet and we just felt that art was that and not other. And I think we've learned that lesson somehow. I think that, you know, there's great projects all across the country. You know, there's Project Artworks, there's Action Space, all these great organisations doing good work. And I think we've learned that lesson really importantly, mm. that there are other ways of making art and there are other types of artists. 
So I think that's all to the good. So generally, it's all much more respected than ever before. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that you can't now really... It's very almost impossible to be a truly art, brute artist by de Buffet's definition because just the sort of methods of communication and mass media mean that you can't really be totally outside the culture. I mean, even I mean, I even think someone like Madge Gill, her little faces and things were inspired by 1920s cinema or something. I mean, everyone is touched by the culture in it some does way. Depend, depend, well, there are different sorts of culture. I mean, people today, uh, like I know an outsider artist who's influenced by culture, but his culture is the Beano or uh, you know, Dusty Bin or something. The culture that he's influenced is not the same culture that we're influenced by. And I think that's the thing, that it's impossible to be uninfluenced by culture, but it depends what sort of culture yeah, it yeah. is. And yeah. also the, the early artworks by mentally ill people, the asylum artists or so, they're all influenced by culture because they all grew up in an in a image culture already. So it, I don't think it's possible to be not influenced by culture, but it's uh, the question, what do you do out of it? Uh, what, what, what happens when you take it in your hands and um, make your own, try to, to formulate your own world in it? I think for me quite instructive was always the comparison, I think Ernst Chris did it for the first time, uh, between uh, art artists who are mentally ill uh, and um, artists who are or, um, young people in their puberty who start to make art. I think it, it, that can happen to everybody. He, he comes into a crisis and somehow d discovers creativity as a kind of outlet. And if that happens, uh, some wonderful things may come out of it. I mean, not all, all uh, young people in their puberty become great artists, but uh, when you remember what some, some of you will, ha will have experienced that, when you remember what happened, somehow uh, art was a very important outlet for feelings and for what changed in your whole body and mind. And maybe the creativity of children is not too far from it as well because they also have to grapple with very, very complicated situations uh, they have never experienced before. Um, and out of these crises uh, can always happen something wonderful aesthetically as well, um, which we may uh, define as outside art. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.